0: Thank you for remaining standing. We, in our sermon series on the book of Mark, have come to Mark chapter 14, verses 1 through 11. Allow me to uh, read that passage for us today. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. even today. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money, and he sought an opportunity to betray him. This is the word of God. May it penetrate our hearts and transform our lives today. You may be seated. There are times when a contrast is made so clear because the things that are being juxtaposed to one another are put right up next to each other, and it makes the difference all the clearer as they are right next to each other. Last year, our family had a wedding out in Montana, and we took our Toyota Highlander out there. And most of the roads that we drove on around that wedding were dirt roads. And so when we came back, our Highlander was filthy. But we didn't recognize just how dirty it was until we pulled into our garage and put it right next to our Honda that I'd had washed right before we left. The contrast was stark as the two sat next to one another. The Honda looked New, it's not, but it looked new and shiny compared to the filth of the Toyota. And the Toyota looked even dirtier, even more desperately in need of a bath as it sat there next to the Honda. The contrast was drawn out as these two things that were different were put right next to each other. You've experienced this idea if you have ever been in a room that was very, very dark and suddenly someone flipped on very bright lights. You didn't recognize how dark the room was until it was contrasted right next to those bright lights that came on. And you may not have recognized how bright those lights were unless it was contrasted right there directly next to the darkness that you had been experiencing. And, and so often, a contrast is seen all the clearer when two things are brought next to one another. And Mark does that in his gospel today. He sets two people right next to each other in order to draw out how clear the contrast is between this woman who comes and anoints Jesus and Judas who betrays Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Now, we know Judas was able to betray Jesus because as we read in this passage, the Jewish leaders were looking for a way to arrest and kill Jesus. Verses 1 and 2 again. It was now two days before the Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. The word translated stealth here is often translated deceit in the New Testament. It has a negative connotation. It doesn't just mean in secret. We might think of it as they wanted to arrest him in a sneaky and underhanded way. And they don't want to do it during the feast. Which feast is this? This is the Passover feast, isn't it? This is the Passover feast. Now, a few weeks ago when Thomas Gold was speaking, he said, when you think of the Passover... I want you to think of the 4th of July meeting the Super Bowl. Yeah, that's a a good description. High nationalistic pride. High religious pride meets enormous crowds of people. Uh, scholars tell us that when the Passover was taking place, hundreds of thousands of worshipers would come and join in in Jerusalem so that this city of Jerusalem, which had a relatively small footprint by modern city standards, would swell to four or five times its normal size. And so everywhere you would go within Jerusalem, you were running into people. There were the smells of food everywhere you went. Commotion, loud noises, crowds gathering, excited. Uh, You might think of a really, really busy day at the state fair. Where everywhere you go in the state fair, you are running into people. You go this way, you run into people. And you just... There's a sea of people everywhere you look, and the smells of food, and it's loud, and there's commotion everywhere going on, and that is what Jerusalem is like during this time. But even more than that, this is a holy time. This is a holy celebration. They are celebrating God's release of his people from generations of slavery in Egypt that God released them by sending the 10th plague, the killing of the firstborn son, and gave his people away for judgment to pass over them through the sacrifice of a spotless lamb and the application of the blood of that lamb. This is a holy time. And so what would we expect the religious leaders of Israel to be doing during this holy time? We might expect them to, to be home with their families, teaching them about the significance of Exodus chapter 12 and what the Passover has meant to God's people. We might expect them to be out in public, leading times of prayer and praise of God. We might expect them to be in the streets, teaching people about the significance of the Passover. But where are the religious leaders? They are gathered behind closed doors, trying to figure out when and where they can murder Jesus. This is a contrast. The holiness of this time of Passover contrasted with the absolute unholiness of the religious leaders of that time seeking to sin in the most unimaginable way. That's what was going on during this particular Passover. They don't want to kill Jesus around the Passover. They don't want to arrest and kill him around the Passover. Why? Because they're really nice and gentle people, right? No, that's not it. Because they are afraid of an uprising from the crowd. Now, there are a couple things to think about when we think about their fear of an uprising from the crowd. The first is, remember, they're afraid of an uprising from the crowd during the feast because there are now hundreds of thousands of visitors who have come into Jerusalem. Tens and tens of thousands of those visitors are from Galilee, the place where Jesus did most of his ministry the place where Jesus is more popular. And so the Jews don't want to arrest and kill Jesus when there are tens of thousands of Galileans who may be more pro-Jesus than they are in the city of Jerusalem. Let's wait till after the feast, after all of these Galileans go home. But even more than that, the Gospel of John shows us that they don't want an uprising during this time because they recognize Rome's eye is trained on us during the Passover feast. All of these people, all of these crowds, all of this nationalistic and religious pride had led to uprisings in the past. And so Rome was hyper-focused on Jerusalem during the Passover. The governor, Pilate, would even come into town in order to make sure he kept his eye on what was going on. And the religious leaders of the, among the Jews don't want any sort of uprising taking place when Rome is watching like this. Because when these kinds of uprisings had taken place in the past, how would Rome reacted? With a heavy hand, costing many lives. And every time that Rome comes in to put down an uprising with a heavy hand, they take away a little more of the power and authority that the Jewish leaders have. And these Jewish leaders are like, we... We don't want to give up any more of our power and authority, so let's make sure there's no uprising right now so that Rome doesn't come in and take any more of that from us. Let's Let's make sure it doesn't happen during this time when Rome is clearly watching. Let's do it sometime later when there's less attention. They don't want to arrest and kill Jesus during the Passover feast. But Judas makes them an offer they can't refuse. We saw that in the last two verses. Then Judas Iscariot who was one of the twelve went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it they were glad and promised to give him money and he sought an opportunity to betray him. I want you to notice here that Judas initiates the betrayal with them. According to Matthew chapter 26 verse 15 Judas initiates getting paid for the betrayal with them. They don't want to arrest and execute Jesus during the Passover feast. But now Judas has come to them as an insider with a way for them to get their hands on Jesus in the dark, in a sneaky way, away from all of the crowds. And they say, we got to take advantage of this. Judas betrays Jesus, the other Gospels tell us, for 30 pieces of silver. That was prophesied in the Old Testament in Zechariah chapter 11. But I also want us to recognize that that was not an enormous sum of money. Scholars today think 30 pieces of silver was roughly equivalent to about one-third the value of the perfume that the woman poured on Jesus. And yet he is willing to take that. He is fed up with Jesus. He wanted this kind of Messiah, and Jesus is going to be this kind of Messiah. And so Judas is willing to betray him, even for a sum that isn't particularly large here. Friends, I love that the religious leaders start off this passage absolutely not wanting to arrest and execute Jesus over the Passover feast. And what do they do? They arrest and execute Jesus over the Passover feast. Why? because of the terribly wicked and sinful actions of man who comes to them in order to betray the one he is following. Just think about that for a minute. They don't want to execute Jesus over the Passover feast. And yet, because of Judas's wicked actions, Jesus will be executed during the Passover, at a time when everyone was celebrating these spotless lambs that were sacrificed as a substitute so that they could be saved from slavery, so that judgment would pass over them, Jesus will now be executed as the sinless lamb of God. His blood shed so that judgment from God would pass over his people and they might be saved, they might be freed. So that Jesus is executed precisely when God intended. So that this symbolism would be beautifully and perfectly shown. Even though the passage starts with all of the religious leaders saying, we don't want it to happen now. Because of the sinful actions of a man who is doing things that are immoral. God somehow uses these immoral actions of the religious leaders and the sinful actions of Judas in order to bring about the death of Jesus at exactly the time he wanted all along. Right? God is awesome. Right? That is amazing as God works all of that together. Beautiful, beautiful. All right, we, we've looked at the dark and dirty side of the contrast that Mark gives us in this passage in Judas. Let's look at the light and pure side of this contrast. The woman that is mentioned in this passage, we begin reading about her in verse 3. And while he was at Bethany, in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. Bethany was just a a couple of miles away from Jerusalem and Jesus is there at the home of Simon the leper. And I believe that Simon no longer has leprosy because he is hosting this large dinner party. I don't think it is a stretch to believe that this very well may be one of the lepers that Jesus has healed over the course of his ministry. We see Jesus healing lepers throughout his ministry. As a matter of fact, go back to the very first chapter of Mark and you'll see a leper with great faith who receives healing from Jesus. I don't think it's a stretch to think that Simon may very well have been one of those lepers who was known as Simon the leper. And now that title is ironic as he lives in the healing that Jesus has provided. And here is a banquet to celebrate Jesus. During that banquet, a woman comes and approaches Jesus and anoints him. Mark does not give us this woman's name. But the parallel passage over in John chapter 12, verse 3, tells us that this is none other than Mary. Not Mary, the mother of Jesus, not Mary Magdalene, Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. There's a lot of Marys, right? Hard to keep them all straight. This is Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. And she has come before Jesus and she is anointing him. We're told in John chapter 12 in the additional information that's supplied there that Martha and Lazarus are also at this banquet. And I just invite you for a minute to think of the little slice of heavenly celebration that was taking place at this banquet as Simon the leper, perhaps shared about what it was like to live for years as a leper, and now the healing that he had received in Jesus. And, and, you know, not not to be a show-off, but then Lazarus shares about what it was like to be dead for four days, and then to be raised from the dead by Jesus. Maybe Mary Magdalene is there, and she's sharing about what it was like to be possessed by seven demons, and then to be freed From that, by Jesus. And and on and on it goes in this beautiful picture of heavenly celebration, of everybody talking about what they had experienced in the power and goodness of Jesus. And in the midst of all of that, Mary comes forward and she breaks this alabaster jar that is filled with an ointment, valuable because it was made from a rare plant in India and she breaks it, and she anoints Jesus' head with oil. John's parallel passage tells us she also put some on his feet and washed his feet with her hair. Uh, Understand in a way that is not true in our culture, in this culture, a woman's hair was considered her glory, her, her finest. And so there is a sense in which Mary is washing The dirty feet of Jesus with the finest she has. Her glory, her hair, in a way that would have been more meaningful than any towel she could have used in order to dry his feet. This is a beautiful act. Mary is pouring all of this out upon Jesus. And as we'll see in a minute, Jesus says she's poured out all she had in this process. I referred to this act just a moment ago as beautiful. There were some in attendance who didn't see it as beautiful, but as disgusting. There were some there at the banquet. They didn't see it as beautiful. They saw it as disgusting. Verses 4 and 5. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, I love that phrase, said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that on you, Jesus? Yikes. For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor, and they scolded her. The word here for scolded is a word that means to flare the nostrils, like a bull does in the ring before it charges after that red cape. They they are flaring their nostrils at her. They're that disgruntled, they're that frustrated with what has gone on here. We know from the additional details that John gives us here that it is Judas the betrayer who is leading all of this indignation. Look at what John's parallel passage says about this. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Judas the thief has a rock-solid public argument about why what this woman has done is wrong. And what is that rock-solid argument that he has about why this woman has done something that is wrong? His argument is one of stewardship. This is poor stewardship. She has these resources, and she could have made a better use of these resources. Specifically, by giving them to the poor. After all, what does God care about more than taking care of the poor? Throughout the Old Testament, we see verse after verse about God's special heart for the poor and desire for people to be caring for them. Judas and the rest of the disciples have heard Jesus say, what you have done to the least of these, you have done to me. The apostles and disciples have picked up on this heart that God has for the poor and care for the poor so that they continue throughout the, apostles say, or throughout the, the epistles saying things like, true religion is to care for widows and orphans in their need. Or, or like in 1 John 3, uh, if someone sees their brother and sister who is in need and does not help, how can the love of the Father be in them? There is this recognition that even the thief Judas gets that God cares deeply for the poor to be cared for. And he says, I got you cornered here. Bad stewardship. But what Judas doesn't understand is that there is something even more important than caring for the poor, and that's Jesus himself even more important than caring for the poor, more important than anything else is Jesus himself. And Mary understands that. And so he rejects Judas's argument. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. Beautiful. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand, for burial. What is Jesus getting at here with the comments about the poor? He's, he wants us to understand caring for the poor is a high, high priority, but Jesus is the absolute highest priority. And as high a priority as caring for the poor is, you have an opportunity to do that tomorrow and the next day and the year after and the year after. I'm only here for a few more days, Jesus says, and she has poured out what is valuable to her in order to honor me before burial. He says, this is beautiful. This is a beautiful act. This is beautiful living. Right? Do, you, do you want to live a life that God considers beautiful, that God considers beautiful? Mary shows us the pathway here in this act to what God considers to be beautiful. A couple of things here that we see about the beautiful life. First, the beautiful life is all about Jesus being the highest priority. Why are her actions beautiful? Because Jesus is the great treasure of her life. The poor could have been her highest priority. Her family could have been her highest priority. Saving this money for a rainy day could have been her highest priority. But what she has shown through her actions is what? Jesus is the highest priority in my life, the great treasure of my life. As, As a matter of fact, I would contend this is what we see from Mary the few times we see her in the Gospels. Luke chapter 10 Martha is busy running around doing a lot of extra things that Jesus calls unnecessary. What is Mary doing? She is just at the feet of Jesus being with him. John chapter 11, Lazarus has died. Jesus comes. Mary sees him. What is the first thing she does? She falls at the feet of Jesus and talks about how great he is. Where is she in this passage? Once again, she ends up at the feet of Jesus because Jesus is the priority and great treasure of her life. It is beautiful living that we see from Mary. And I would suggest that in this passage, the Holy Spirit has used Mark in order to provide a contrast for us of what a true disciple looks like versus what a false disciple looks like. A true disciple versus a false disciple. What does a true disciple look like? Well, we we see that in Mary here. A true disciple of Jesus sees their time, talent, and treasure as things to be used for Jesus and given over to Him. A true disciple of Jesus has their mind and heart focused on Him and extravagantly and sacrificially lives for Him. A true disciple of Jesus recognizes it is Jesus who is the great treasure of life. And life is all about being with him. We see in Judas what a false disciple is like. And I just want to call your attention to the fact that when we talk about Mary and Judas, both of these people were within the Jesus community. Both of these people are within the Jesus community. We might think of both of these people as church people today. One of them a true disciple, one of them a false disciple. What what are characteristics of the false disciple? Judas seems to have sought Jesus for the things that he could get through Jesus, the things that Jesus might provide for him. Judas seems to have sought Jesus for for money, for, for perhaps increased power or notoriety. When Jesus wasn't a path to those things, he abandoned Jesus and went directly after them. Today, A false disciple may value being around the things of Jesus for the sake of getting good health, great friends, success at work, better behaved kids, just a general sense of good luck throughout my life. But in those situations, they are looking not to Jesus as the treasure, but to the things that Jesus may provide for them as the treasure. Jesus isn't Lord Those blessings are, Lord, and Jesus is just a tool to get to those blessings. And so they are not disciples of Jesus. They are disciples of these things over here they want Jesus to provide. That is a false disciple. I don't want to be a Judas, not any day of my life. Do I want to be a Judas in which I am primarily focused on Jesus for the things he'll get me? in which I only pursue Jesus because I have an actual other great treasure that I'm pursuing and think he'll get me there. Instead, I want to be a Mary who recognizes that Jesus is the great treasure and that being with him is the great treasure of life. That's the beautiful life. When Jesus is the highest priority, when Jesus is the great treasure. The second thing I think that we see about here in in the beautiful life is this. The sacrificial loving of Jesus that she does. What is the beautiful life about? It is about sacrificially loving Jesus. In verse 8, when Jesus says that she has done all she could, he's saying she couldn't have given any more. Uh, She couldn't have done more is what he is saying. She's given to me all that she possibly had. Uh, This ointment that she gives uh, may have been worth $50,000 in today's money. It may very well have been their family treasure, their security for the future. And she comes and breaks it and pours it all out upon Jesus. And Jesus says, she couldn't have done more than this. It's possible that they had a family treasure in money that she used to buy this for this purpose. We don't know. But Jesus says she couldn't have possibly done any more. She is like the widow we saw just a couple of chapters ago. Do you remember her with her two small copper coins? She only had two small copper coins. And how much did she give? Both. She gave everything. Because Mary's love for Jesus is sacrificial and it's extravagant. And Jesus says it's beautiful. It's beautiful. Mary could have saved some of the oil for herself. I mean, if she had poured out the equivalent of $10,000 worth of oil on Jesus and and saved $40,000 for herself, wouldn't wouldn't that be pretty generous? Wouldn't many of us have counseled that? Yeah, 20%, that's pretty good. You should save the rest and see what comes up. But Mary's heart is different than that. She says, all of life is about Jesus, and I'm not giving him 20%. Everything is going to belong to him. I am pouring it all out on him because he is the great treasure of my life. My practical heart, practical might be another word for faithless, my practical heart sometimes struggles with faith to live with this kind of Mary-like abandon for Jesus. Jesus. I remember when my daughter was eight years old, she had accumulated a little over $50 in her piggy bank. Uh, Through little cash gifts she'd gotten for Christmas or for her birthday or for doing chores, she'd accumulated a little over uh, $50 in her piggy bank. And one day, a missionary at church shared about a particular need. And that afternoon, our daughter came to us and she said, I want to give everything that is in my piggy bank to that need. I I knew how long it had taken her to accumulate all that was in that piggy bank. And so I said to her, Sweetie, are you sure? You don't know what else you might want to use that for in the future. How about if you give some now and then save some for later and see what you want to do with it? That is when my eight-year-old daughter looked at me and said, Dad, doesn't Jesus want me to give it all? <sighs> and so the next week we helped her to give it all. And, and I was so convicted and struck by the fact that often my heart is not a heart of love in a way that is all out, a love that is Filled with abandon for Jesus in the way that my eight-year-old daughter's heart was that day. This week as I was preparing this message, I was convicted by how many days there are now when my heart is not filled with the all-in abandon that we see from Mary where everything goes to Jesus, where he is the complete and total treasure of life and there is nothing else I desire on this earth besides you. How often do I fall short of this merry level of all-out love that we see in this passage? What we see here, Jesus says, is beautiful. This is the beautiful living. Everything given for me. As I experience that conviction, my prayer over the course of this week for myself and for you is, Lord... Let us pour everything out for you and your kingdom today. My time, my talent, my treasure, whatever it is, it all belongs to you. You're my great passion. You're my great pursuit. You're the treasure in life. You don't get me to the treasure. You're the treasure. Everything in life is about you. Let's be Mary's. Right friends, today, let's be Mary's. What does that look like in your life? This last week, we entered into a season on the church calendar that is sometimes referred to as Lent. Now, Lent is bigger than this, but it has become known as a time in which people will give something up for 40 days for the sake of Jesus. Maybe they give up eating meat on Fridays. Maybe they give up candy. Maybe they give up watching some show. And they do so for a number of days for Jesus. I would just like you to think about this passage that we've read and the beautiful life that Mary shows us here and suggest that perhaps what we can pray about right now is more than just something that we could give up for a few days. But let's pray right now about how we can give up everything to Jesus today? How can everything we are and everything we have be given over to him in a greater way? I'd invite you right now, if you would, to just bow your heads with me and, and think about that and pray about that, right? Talk to Jesus about that. God, how can I be Mary today? How can I be Mary this week? So that everything is completely and totally given over to you.